Welcome back to another episode of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I'm Nate, here with my fellow co-host. I'm Innkeeper Vaisoden. And we're back for part three of our review for the Delta Green RPG campaign, Iconoclast. We did it. We're finally finishing our review of Iconoclast. <laughs> hey man, a lot has happened to the both of us from May to October, so hopefully we get a bit of a break. But that has given us the opportunity to reread and recollect our thoughts about the campaign as a whole. But if you haven't already, be sure to check out parts one and two of this review. It'd be a bit strange if you were coming into part three without listening to those, but, you know, sometimes people do that. If you like these types of reviews and you want to support the show, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash thegreatoldonesgaming. We'd very much appreciate it. Like previous episodes, there will be major spoilers throughout, so any players in the audience should hand in their badges now and send their handler this way. All right. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, let's get right into it. So in part two, we, we talked about some of the avenues of research that the players could pursue while they were in Iraq. Um, just a quick, brief explanation or review of what happened in the first two parts. Um, the players get hold of a video where some uh, Iraqi soldiers get killed and uh, it's clearly some kind of incursion from the unnatural. So Delta Green is sent in to Iraq, which is a hostile territory as it is, and they're trying to figure things out. And uh, pretty much there was a major chapter that we talked about in part two that all had to do with Mosul, the city where the PCs were going to be in. And there's all sorts of different avenues that they can take in order to research this situation. So at some point in their investigation, the players are going to realize that they need to cross into even more hostile territory, which is the ISIL territory, and get into Mosul itself. So uh, we'll start with part four. That's where we left off last time, which is a chapter called Among Jin and Men. And it, this chapter, pretty much all, all it does is provide guidance on running the player's infiltration of Mosul. Yeah, at some point, the agents are going to realize that they'll need to cross over into ISIL territory and get into Mosul itself. So part four, which Vase mentioned, uh, among Jin and Men, provides guidance on running the player's infiltration of Mosul. The book stresses that the threat of the father of war must be neutralized by the players. Any other means would present further conflicts or complications. Uh, like in part two, Among Jin and Men lays out criteria and recommendations for agents, uh, for agents' mission at hand. Uh, Colonel Gwynn, their contact at Delta Green, uh, he'll go over the agents' plans in pretty exhaustive detail during their researching, so... As the handler, you can sort of guide the players along in that aspect, which I really like. The book kind of goes over two main styles of tactics. There's the clandestine tactics, which usually involve methods of avoiding detection altogether. This would be like dodging patrols or avoiding checkpoints, uh, operating at night, that, that kind of stuff. And the second one is covert tactics, which are ways of 
getting the players into Mosul and seeming either non-threatening or kind of posing as civilians or ISIL security, you know, that sort of, that sort of stuff. It's likely that the players will probably want to do a mix of the two, but whatever you plan to come up with, the program is able to aid the players in getting stuff that they need, within reason, of course. Yeah, and I think this part is really where the book starts to shine. The way it breaks down the possible avenues that the players can take, I, I feel like a lot of players that aren't used to dealing with military operations and things like that aren't going to know where to start. So I think a, a good handler can kind of nudge players in certain directions regarding this. But needless to say, because this is a more kind of boots-in-the-ground operation, the book does recommend that new characters are used for this part. So in the first part, there's a lot more research that's going on and you know touching base with connections, international partners with uh, both the U.S. military as well as Delta Green, and kind of gathering information, researching into the occult portion of the scenario, all that kind of stuff, the unknown winds of Adad. And uh, this one is, since it's more like action-based, uh, the skill set necessary is much different. So the book does provide pre-generated characters for this section, but they also recommend that if you're making your own characters, that there's certain skill sets that they should be proficient in. As I was reading this campaign and thinking about how I would run it, I became a bit torn between two approaches, and I'm curious to hear what you think, Face. Would you run these chapters in parallel with each other? You know, maybe switching between uh, research work and infiltration work from session to session? Or would you run them uh, sequentially, you know, doing the research first and then doing the infiltration? I'm curious to hear what you think, Face. Both can work, uh, I think, depending on the play style of the group. I think, personally, I would prefer, like, a snippet type of thing. So the players, the first group that's doing research finds out some information regarding, I don't know, the location of the Unknown Winds to Adad. And then we cut to the scene of the other characters that are on the ground that are out to go find this this information. Um, and then we flip back to gathering more information. I think that's the... The fun way to do it because sometimes some players prefer the investigative part some players prefer the action part and if you do too much of either one you know you you risk certain players getting bored or losing interest and i think this keeps things interesting because you're flipping uh the story from the more intense investigation that requires a lot more thinking and brain power and then the more kind of tactical uh, side of it where you're trying to avoid getting caught and maybe getting into some gunfights and things like that. I think I think it could work best that way, if at least for my group, but I can see where other groups might be interested in completing one section and then anticipating, you know, the section of going in and, and seeing what their efforts bear fruit of and then having the people that are the boots on the ground kind of then, you know, do that that section where it becomes far more action packed. And what do you think? I think I sit somewhere in the middle. I can definitely see both working out really well, but for my group at least, I think it would be best to lead into a climax of action after a couple of sessions of investigation. A big factor on my choice would be the pacing of the campaign and how many sessions I'd want to plan for. 
the duality of these two chapters permits both playstyles, which I really like that aspect of the campaign a lot. Uh, another aspect that I really appreciate is the focus on the world building and the environmental storytelling over PC character-driven development. Yeah, there's so many players, you know, and not players as in people playing the game, but like players, actors in the role, in the different roles of this whole story. It's such a big story and spans continents and spans, you know, different times. And it, I think, I think just because of how big it is, it's pretty impossible to just have one set of characters. So I think you're right. I think the, the idea of this campaign running through multiple characters simultaneously, each player having three or four characters that they're running in this campaign is probably not unlikely. Yeah, which is a really cool aspect that you bring up, Vase. Um, but something that's going to affect the agents, regardless of how you decide to run it, is temperature and the weather. There's a brief section going over temperature and hydration during the months of the campaign. The late spring-slash-summer months can become extremely hot, that can require necessary precautions to avoid lest they suffer the consequences. Uh, nighttime can also be the other extreme and can get uncomfortably cold. Uh, these swings in temperature should be factors uh, for the players to take into consideration, but I know, Vase, you're, you're kind of on the other side, yeah? It's, you know, it's something that I think, it, I'm glad they put it in there, because there are groups that like that. But it's something that if I were to run it, uh, I would kind of just do it once, you know, so players get an idea and in their mind, they can have that canon in there that this is happening, the heat and the cold and all that. But once you introduce it one time, then you kind of just narrate it afterwards. I Some people like the survivalist type of game, but I find that most people find it tedious. <laughs> so... Again, I'm, I'm glad they put it in there for those people, and I think it's important because it does provide a little bit more flavor, but it's not something that I think I would recommend for most groups to be using on a, on a daily basis. Like, you know, it, it can take away from some of the more fun parts of playing an RPG when you're trying to manage, oh, I drink water, oh, I eat food, you know, oh, I get, I put on a blanket, you know, like that kind of stuff is feels tedious at times yeah i i think to take a note from the alien rpg is that i would treat it more like a periodic check where i would have the players maybe ensure that they have the supplies with them and really only bring it up in situations where it's dramatic or flavorful because otherwise i feel like it could be way too much bookkeeping and I, I do like that idea of introducing it just here and there to, to remind the players, just as a reminder, here and there. Very, you know, tiny little sprinkles, like putting salt on your food. Not too much. <laughs> yeah, I like to treat it like throwing a wrench in the players' plans, you know, just to create dramatic tension. It helps with immersion, for sure. Um, but the one, the thing that I'm, um, I think uh, people listening to this that want to run this, if you, especially if you're a newer handler, don't make it like a major part of your daily sessions uh, because this this is it gets tedious. Players don't necessarily care. And if a player like ends up dying because they get a disease because they didn't drink enough water or they weren't out in the cold for too long, it's not a fun way to lose your character. <laughs> like and it's not interesting. You know, I mean, I think I think having that there definitely helps with immersion. And I love the idea that you 
that you got from Alien RPG, which is just here and there, just as a reminder. That's it. <laughs> Moving on to Mosul itself, the front line is, quote-unquote, fluid. Kurdish units advance on ISIL positions carefully to avoid IEDs and other explosives. Agents that see any of this fighting going on will be struck by the brutality exhibited on both sides. The chaotic nature of Mosul makes getting in risky. There's a section that details uh, various approaches that the agents may take, each posing their own set of challenges. The book provides an excellent list of encounters that can be inserted at the handler's discretion. It's definitely a section worth bookmarking. It is one of my favorite sections in the entire book. So the, here's something. Uh, I run a lot of different RPGs, and normally I hate random encounters in role-playing games. I think, I think most of the time random encounters feel like filler. They never really introduce dangers to the players. Um, but this book does it right. The, the way they introduce the random encounters here, and Delta Green is a game where I normally would never even dream of having random encounter tables, but the encounters here are all interesting. They all add to the story and the flavor, and they all help the players get immersed in into exactly what kind of environment their characters are in. It is not friendly. There are dangers around every corner, and it's not like, oh, something's coming at you. You got to fight it. Like every encounter that they introduce, and there's like 20 of them. They, they really put a lot of thought into that. They're all super interesting, and you you get to really experience the li the daily life of people living in the city. It is horrible. It is deadly. It is treacherous and just oppressive. And the pl the player characters get to experience a lot of it. And it, sometimes they may run past something and have to make a very very difficult decision. Do they do something about you know obvious you know mistreatment of humanity? and try and stop that just to help people and be good people and maybe risk their cover or is the greater mission more important and have to, and then the the player characters have to deal with the repercussions of not having done anything and knowing that some people are going to be just completely abused or even killed or tortured because the player characters didn't do anything when they could have it's really cool and it, I love kind of difficult ethical decisions like that and a lot of the encounters provide that and not just that some of the encounters provide very very interesting situations that are not necessarily ethical but like uh your your vehicle might get hit by an ally by an ally missile because they confuse you for an enemy force and you might lose a leg and you might you you might lose your vehicle and now what do you do do you trek through the you know through the sand dunes on foot while you're missing a leg and do you seek help like what do you do uh, there's so many cool encounters. It is one of my favorite parts of the, of the entire book. I think it adds a lot to the entire campaign as a whole. Damn, Vase, that's some high praise. Personally, I'm always a fan of having encounter tables, even if I don't use them, because I may be inspired by them for other scenarios or use them as descriptive backdrops for the agents. I think I share your sentiment, though, about this being one of the best parts of the campaign. The goals of the previous chapter can feel a bit nebulous at times, I feel. And directionless, yeah. It's hard. A lot of in inexperienced players don't wouldn't even know where to begin. This one kind of nudges you in the, in the right direction. 
Yeah, yeah. And when you're reading through Iconoclast, um, this chapter feels much more laser focused, which I which I find to be much more useful as a resource during a session. There, there's also uh, sections that are detailing the different allies that the that the players uh, can sort of rely on <laughs> in Mosul. Um, some of them they can trust, and some of them are maybe just you know handle with caution type of allies um and and the the smarter players can get some really uh, needed much needed assistance while they're in mosul from some of these allies so there's there's battalions that kind of um are are kind of spread out all around mosul which is described as a ghost town <laughs> mosul as a whole is described as a ghost town which is kind of interesting and creepy is the battalions the ones that are like kind of spying on them Yep, yep. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, so the battalions is one that's interesting because they, they're they kind of allies, but they also don't fully trust the agents. And so they kind of bug their hideout <laughs> and they listen in uh, for any kind of uh, possible betrayal or just things that might get them caught or get them in trouble. It's kind of an interesting dynamic to deal with them. And the, the agents may not notice that their hideout is bugged, but I think smart agents knowing that they're in hostile territory will probably be very thorough in, in searching these things and find the bugs and maybe, you know, have to deal with those repercussions. So that's, that's an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. And the battalions are one of the factions you'll want the agents to be aware of, whether as an ally or an adversary, because they play a pivotal role towards the climax of the story. There's also the university, which, uh, is, Really, I guess not super. Uh, it's not so much a friendly location because ISIL is using portions of the university for their own troops and things. Uh, a lot of the university is shut down. Uh, they mentioned that it's been kind of uh, taken over and it used to have 30,000 students, but it's down to about 2,000 students. There are some colleges that are open though. ISIL does allow certain studies to still take place but they do not allow women at all to be a part of the university um but yeah the university uh is mentioned in in this section even though i don't think it's a place where um where most agents are going to try and seek allies although they can find some people that might be able to help them the agents may seek information there or schedule a meeting with a potential asset there uh, given that it's in public and by doing so, you can slip in encounters with the battalions because they use the university as a meeting place. Yeah, yeah, fair. And then there's also their, their safe house, which they're probably going to acquire by through contact with the battalions. The, the safe house uh, is a place where the, the PCs have some friendly, friendly allies and they can kind of set up base. But it's not something where they can uh, stay in one place for a prolonged period of time. Because, again, they're in hostile territory and they eventually will be found. So they may have m multiple safe houses and have to move around periodically in order to continue their operations without interruption. Yeah, which is realistic and pretty cool. And the book provides like uh, some, some family members in, in one of the uh, sample safe houses, which is pretty cool because that helps a lot for a handler because this book already has a lot for the handler to to kind of juggle so it's nice to have some some sample uh family to to use 
that way you you don't have to come up with it on the spot when the players say, "Oh, whose house are we staying in as a safe house?" So that's that's pretty uh that's pretty handy to have that there. Yep. And lastly, there's a SWAT team operating in the city that the agents may or may not encounter. The addition of the SWAT team is meant to, I believe, act as sort of a wild card, uh, a desperate third party that seeks aid from the players. It's another dial for the handler to turn if needed. Uh, their inclusion definitely isn't necessary for the main story, so handlers, you, you can definitely remove this aspect if you want to. I don't know how I feel about it. I think on the one hand, I do enjoy it for what it is, but like you said, Vase, there's already so much going on that I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it. I don't think. Uh, I agree. I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably not necessary, but it's another option. Like you said, it's they have an interesting history, so I think that's the purpose of it being here. It's just to add more history to an already chaotic history of Mosul uh, in case it, it wasn't fleshed out enough. You know, having these little stories definitely brings it to life because a lot of this really happened. So that's uh, that's also really interesting. But I agree with you. It's probably unnecessary overall. Yeah, but let's move on to what the players need to learn while they're in Mosul. The agent's time in Mosul will ultimately lead them to some major revelations that lead to the climax of the story. One of the ways that they can learn some valuable information is by capturing a son of war. Capturing a son of war is obviously no easy task, but can give the players a lot of information. This information, however, can come at a cost. Uh, there's a pretty major obstacle that the players will have to overcome. So all the Sons of War have to uh, consume a piece of uh, obsidian. And it is a way for the Father of War to uh, kind of spy on anyone that comes into contact with one of the Sons of War. It is the Father of War's eyes and ears. And so if the agents do have a captured Son of War and interrogate him they may not know at first that they are that everything that they ask and all the information they're learning that the father of war knows that this is happening not just that but if they happen to take the captive to their safe house and not cover his eyes and ears or knock them unconscious then the father of war will know by default exactly where their safe house is and they risk getting attacked by a, a huge battalion of the sons of war which will eventually lead to the agent's demise so it could be very deadly it's a kind of playing with fire trying to interrogate one of the sons of war but the information they can gather from them is invaluable so it is worth the risk the other potential danger is the shard itself if they ask too much or dig too deep the father of war can activate this shard that's in the stomach of the son of war tear through the stomach and this shard flies around and just starts shredding the skin of the players. So could be pretty deadly, but it could also be a way for the agents to learn the weaknesses of the father of war, because if they find a way to destroy this shard with sunlight or, you know, some kind of um, magic or, or, you know, some of the other ways that they can use to destroy the Father of War, they can learn that by 
handling just one shard as opposed to fighting the father of war and learning it during that battle. <laughs> so it, it definitely can provide some useful information, but it is so risky. Yeah, definitely. If the agents really fuck up, I'd suggest luring them into a trap rather than killing them outright. The father of war is brutal, but he's also cruel. Maybe conversely you could have the father of war attempt to offer one of the agents something that they deeply desire, which would lead really nicely into the ending of the campaign. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool section. I, I, I think no matter what any any handler should find a way to introduce a captive son of war because A the amount of information they can learn from them, but B also it would be probably the agent's first contact with something unnatural in terms of like the actual shard and the abilities that this that this uh, incursion can can present and uh, maybe figure out ways to destroy it it gives them a chance for that so introducing this is important and there's different ways you can do it like you touched on it earlier you can have one of their allies capture this guy and then contact the agents and say hey we have someone you know and then go from there so it doesn't necessarily have to be some uh, idea that the agents have like oh hey can we try and capture someone but it may just be something that they that falls on their lap type of thing the next revelation detailed in the book is about our former wolf of Almansor, i believe is how it's pronounced uh idris sharapov yeah, i'm gonna butcher all these uh while in mosul the agents can discover that idris is now a member of al jubiri's counterintelligence team uh, how they uncover this information is left up to the handler, but the important part is that the agents learn that Idris is currently at Mosul General Hospital. If the agents manage to arrange a meeting with Sharapov, uh, Sharapov will reveal to them that Al-Jabiri and the Chechen led him to the ruins of Nineveh and to a cave nearby. Uh, Idris will tell them about the wolves of Al-Mansur and the execution meant to take place on March 30th of 2016. Uh, when they entered the cave, a whirling curtain of black shards of glass poured from the ceiling and they flayed people alive. Uh, Idris escaped, uh, but not without suffering severe wounds to uh, their face and hands. Yeah, um, and um, Sherpov, um kind of knows about um, Al-Jabiri's movements in Mosul. And um, the and he kind of knows, like, uh, his his uh, security detail. So that's it's pretty important information for the agents to learn. Um, the, he also kind of mentions about how some of the some of the sons of war have become servants uh, of the of the father of war. So uh, not just that, but more importantly, Sharapov can tell the agents where the location of the father of war is. So that's huge, hugely important information because that will lead to the grand finale of and the confrontation in the, in the campaign. Yeah, and this is one of the better ways that the agents can possibly learn of this information because tracking Al-Jabiri is not an easy task. Yeah, and you don't want to just drop it like, oh, one of your allies says that they heard this from... Sh like, that's just too on-the-nose, like, exposition dump. So uh, I think 
I think having the agents themselves talk to him feels more natural and more like they earned it. Kind of uh, finding a way for them to to have this uh, encounter with him is is pretty important. Yeah, definitely. You definitely don't want to just have some NPC give the information to the players. That's not fun. The criticism that I have of this part of the campaign is it's hard to find a way to naturally inject this. The book mentions something about the players potentially intercepting NSA communications and discovering Idris's location that way. But I find that unless the players specifically think of something like that or the handler suggests that to them, that a lot of groups probably aren't going to think of something like that. I think handlers are going to have a task ahead of them in injecting this piece into their campaign because, like we said, it's it's an important piece of information that they need to learn, and this is one of the better ways that they can learn it. I do think that the book maybe needed to emphasize how important those first two things we talked about, the captured son of war and um, encounter or communication with um, Shapirov. I think uh, they should emphasize how important that is because if you don't, if you're reading through this and you don't realize how important it is, you may not know, you may not catch that the players aren't going to figure out that they need this information and they may find themselves lost and you might get frustrated as a handler. Like, why aren't they heading over here or trying to do this or trying to capture some, like the, I wish the the book, and this is part of what I'm going to say in the conclusion, which I said in the very beginning, and I think the first episode that this campaign is clearly for more advanced handlers and players, because a lot of this stuff, like it's not intuitive. Like you wouldn't, if you're a first time handler, you read through this, you're not going to realize how important those two things are and how, and you're going to, you're not going to realize that you need to find a way to introduce it and plan ahead for that. Because the player, you're going to assume, if you're a new handler, you're going to assume the players are going to are going to know and ask these things. And then you're going to get frustrated when they don't. Even though it's not their fault. Because you don't realize what they don't know. <laughs> so, so yeah. I do, I do think that this is definitely adds to the, to the sentiment that this book is not made for new players and handlers. Yeah. I feel like the book really could have benefited from some bolding on important keywords because when you're reading it at a glance it's hard to remember what's supposed to be important or what's relevant to the section that you're reading especially when there's so many different names and locations that are all tied together it can be hard to remember at a at a notice uh, what's connected to what but another possible revelation comes in the form of a recent local widow who saw the father of war attack the guards at an ISIL checkpoint. She will describe details of the event that should at this point corroborate with other accounts of the father of war. Could help. Um, again, more important than it seems at first glance because you're, you don't know what your players don't know. Like, you, you, you know what you know. You know what you're supposed to know, but your players don't. And sometimes it takes multiple or a lot of repetition for players to catch that something is important. And, you know, running many, many games, it's very clear. You have to give information to the players multiple times before they're like, oh, yeah, this is probably important. You know, giving it to them one time is you may think that they're going to that they 
catch on that it's important stuff, but it may not be. So a, a small little thing like this is a little bit more important than it seems at first glance. The last revelation detailed in this section of the book goes over a man named Aziz Murad, who is the leader of the Mosul battalions. Uh, the agents may potentially have an ally in Aziz, or he may be an antagonist to them. But eventually, he will learn the truth of the power of the Father of War, and he will try to contain it for himself. Personally, I really like this angle a lot, and if I was running this, I'd be looking to include this in my game. Murad can act as a seemingly helpful asset at first, but as time passes, he slips into corruption, which is mwah, great stuff. I mean, there's nothing more Lovecraftian than that, you know, the hubris of humanity. That it, It's one of the one of the elements of Lovecraft that, because uh, I, I kind of wrote out like 10 uh, elements of cosmic horror for a series that I'm doing on my channel, and one of them is that, the hubris of humanity, and when they find powers that are, that are unknown and, you know, the humanity was never meant to see, they someone always thinks that they can control it and use it to gain more power for themselves, but it never works out well for them. It always ends up where uh, they think they can control it, but the they are in over their heads, and then they unleash something far worse for everyone else to deal with because they'll be gone. They'll be, you know, destroyed by this power. And th there's this is so perfect in terms of cosmic horror and Lovecraft. It's great. At the end of the day, the agents need to learn three important things. Where is the father of war? How do I get there? And how do I destroy this thing? Hopefully they discovered a means of destroying the father of war in their weeks of research. Uh, if they didn't, they're kind of screwed. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of dooming the players from the start. So if I was running this campaign, I think I would find a way for the players to learn a method of either containing or destroying the father of war and perhaps it's this revelation that causes aziz to turn and that would be really cool once the agents know all of this information it's time for them to act upon it there will be certainly some obstacles along the way but the agents are going to need to plan some kind of assault on the cave which can be conducted in a plethora of ways. It's something that if the if the agents don't come up with a way to infiltrate using their out, they're going to need allies um, to get in there. I mean, there's, I, I don't know how they're going to do it without having some kind of force to help them. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a battle. It's a pretty cool like set piece too. Yeah, the book does provide some examples like a traditional assault or some sort of covert tactic there are certainly options for the players and um and the book provides uh, different possible outcomes based on certain things that some <laughs> some um crazy players might try like an airstrike that just completely tries to obliter obliterate the entire uh location like that's probably not gonna end well for for the players because if even one shard of obsidian survives, then the father of war has a way to return. So their their only chance of truly ending the threat is actually going in and ensuring that all the pieces are either contained or destroyed. 
and how they go about destroying these shards is left up to the players. There are a few different options details for the players in the book. The first of which is sunlight, which is a nice callback to vampirism. The second is the elder sign that was drawn on the lid of the amphora that they learned about from Sloan, the outlaw from the beginning of the campaign. And lastly, there is the closing of the breach ritual that they can potentially discover from the book Unknown Winds of Adad. Yeah, and if they if they use that ritual, the father of war is going to threaten them and promises to really just obliterate them by flaying their skin or or even capturing and flaying their loved ones. Um, the the cool part about this is if they're trying to use this this ritual. The father of war tries everything it can. It starts with threats, but it also tries to entice one of the players. And uh, it basically promises them to become the new leader uh, so that others worship them. Uh, and if even one player kind of agrees to it, it's, it's over for the rest. <laughs> yeah, that's literally all it takes. And there is one other option. Uh, the players could potentially create a new throne of blood or find the original and trap the Elder God in it. I think all of these options work well. Which one you use, I think, ultimately depends on what the agents have learned up until that point. Yeah, for those who, who uh, didn't listen to part one or two, which weird if you didn't, but <laughs> um, the throne of blood is the amphora. It's kind of like a this big container that's got the elder sign on the on the seal and that's where the father of war initially was was being held uh and captured so uh the throne of blood is not an actual throne it's a it's a container where they keep the father of war trapped and that's really about it as far as the story goes the ending is sort of left up to the handler's discretion on how to best orchestrate all of that for their agents and for what has happened throughout their campaign it's hard because there's so there's so many ways it can go. I mean, a player might uh, fall for the temptation. Um, they may the the agents may fail and all die. The agents may succeed but leave a shard, or the agents may fully succeed. There's just so many different ways it can go. It's really open. <laughs> so a, a handler definitely would need to come up with the right ending and anticipate what the players might be doing based on previous actions, but it's it's not something you're going to know before running this. It's something you're going to have to then you're going to have to figure out as you're playing the campaign and understanding which direction the players are going to take this thing. Yeah, the story by and large is left up to the handler. It's written in a reactive method. And what I mean by that is the handler creates the story in reaction to what the players are discovering in the moment. I think that style is appealing to some handlers, but may not be for everyone. The last section in the book is really just there for the handler's reference, and I do like this section quite a bit. Part 5 is, um, instead of an appendix, they set it as a special kind of chapter at the very end, which is which is good that they did that, because and I think an appendix kind of gives it like a, here, just in case for reference, whereas making it another chapter... Uh, kind of speaks to the importance of part five because and it, the chapter is called Blacker Than Black. And it's 
kind of introduces new mechanics for using assets from foreign agencies for getting information or getting favors. It is so good. I, I can't emphasize how good this chapter is. I initially, when I first read it, I kind of breezed through it and didn't think too much of it. But not, I reread this because, you know, we, we, we're, we're thinking of doing this review way months ago. And I read through this and then I had to reread it just to refresh on everything. And when I reread it, I really love this section. It's stuff that I wish was in the handler's guide for the game because it's so good. It's basically they introduce mechanics for dealing with, with your allies and assets and they can be used for, for other missions. You can kind of tweak these these mechanics to work with other Delta Green missions if you wanted to. The the mechanics that it introduces work really well. I think they're they're so well done and so tight uh, regarding, you know, the difficulty of a task that you're asking for and the particular allies that you're asking this from and what kind of assistance you, you need. It's and if another agent is helping you out with doing it, uh, what the repercussions if you fail. It's so good. It's the handler's guide has kind of a similar thing, but it's very brief and it's not developed enough. Whereas I think in this section, it's really well developed and not just that, but then it kind of lists the different agencies and you know what to expect based on the roles that you make and all this stuff. And what's even better is all of this is kind of stuff from the back end that the handler deals with. And the players don't really get to experience these mechanics. They just experience the narrative uh, repercussions of the roles based on these mechanics. It's almost like a secret set of mechanics that only the handler knows about, uh, but can really impact and can really add a lot to the game. I think it's something that's really adds a lot of fun to being a handler. And even though players like rolling dice and like seeing their roles and their successes and all this stuff, I think this works well because this game is more of a narrative game anyways. And Having a kind of direction to help you as a handler determine the narrative conclusions or resolutions for certain requests that the players are making from the different agencies instead of just coming in, coming up with it in your own head based on what you feel like if you're in a bad mood, then the agency gets mad at you or whatever. Instead, you have mechanics, so the dice will determine what happens. And I think that's really awesome. Uh, I wish they had more of this in other Delta Green scenarios. It's so good. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Vase. The handler has a lot to deal with on the story side of things, so this section does a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the mechanical side of things, which is a huge relief for a handler. And yeah, like you said, Vase, you could absolutely take any of the information in these two chapters and extrapolate on it further for your own use cases, which would be really cool it would be nice to see more tables and stuff like this in future campaigns of delta green i agree i think i think for a handler this book can give you so many ideas for future operations regarding especially like some of the mechanics the way they do things uh the detailing of the agencies you can use this and apply it or make your own for other agencies in other parts of the world and i think it's really really cool really uh an invaluable resource like you said for handler so why don't we get into our final thoughts here vase we've read through the whole campaign at this point what are your thoughts what are you feeling well um final thoughts are definitely not for new players i wish it were because you know having a full campaign is really fun and 
I think a lot of new players want something like that instead of one-shots. But this campaign is not one I would recommend for new players. Experienced handlers and players would really enjoy this. Uh, it takes a lot of work on the side of the handler. A lot of work. It's, uh, it's a complex campaign with a lot of moving parts. And uh, some of the things, I mean, we talked about some of the great things that we really like about it. The story is really cool. Very intriguing. Very well put together in terms of that. Clearly... Adam Scott Glancy's knowledge of this section of the world and this time period, uh, you know, of all the wars going on uh, from the 90s to the to the through the 2000s. Uh, his knowledge is clearly on display here. Uh, and it's clear that he, he was a government guy. So, you know, it's clear that he knows what he's talking about. But I do wish that the book had sort of more assistance for handlers. Even experienced handlers may have some trouble with some of these sections and may get overwhelmed. And I wish that there were more of this, like, putting it all together sections uh, that bring in all the complex elements and maybe gives example situations of how one particular thing might go. So, like, giving an example of dealing with a, a certain agency, how the mechanics introduced in Section 5 work in terms of that, and then some of the outcomes that are presented in the book. And then just kind of throwing an example to help a handler kind of wrap their brain around how everything fits together in terms of this. There is a kind of summary chart for the for some of these mechanics in, in, chap, in uh, Chapter 5. It's the last page of the book, which is, I think, page 204 or something like that, which is a nice start, but it's not enough. I wish they had more of this kind of stuff to help handlers uh, run this campaign but overall I think this campaign is awesome it's very different from anything else that I've seen in terms of Delta Green I love the military aspect I love the the realism and just the absolute horror for me this was one of the most horrifying campaigns because it deals with so many real world problems that are going on in that side of the world I think that adds to the realism and the and the realism adds to the horror so overall I I think uh Definitely thumbs up for this for this book. When I first started the review, I wasn't as hot on it, but rereading it, and I think because of the complexity, it requires a reread or multiple read-throughs in order for you to get fully grasp everything. But after rereading it, I kind of see where they're coming from, and overall, I really, really loved it. What are your thoughts, Nate? I think I'm somewhere in the same ballpark as you, Vase. I think initially I was a little cold to this campaign. I think once the players get out into Mosul and they begin their research, that section for me at times felt a bit aimless. I felt at times the book didn't do a very good job of clearly defining the player's goals in their research. And I think part of the reason for that is the book's expectation on the handler to kind of keep notes as they're reading or for players to take the initiative and create their own goals and i think that sort of style can be difficult for certain handlers especially newer handlers like you were saying vase but i think certain groups are really chomping at the bit for that style of play and iconoclast provides that to them that being said the campaign itself has a lot of great set pieces and scenes for groups to experience but it does require the handler to spin a lot of plates. If you're planning to run this for yourself, you're looking at least 6 to 10 sessions of gameplay, and for your money, that's well worth it, I think. 
I think this book also makes a lot of sense in the Delta Green product line. You know, it, it's more than just a one-shot scenario, but it's less intimidating than, say, Impossible Landscapes. The book's formatting for me does leave a bit to be desired. I feel like a lot of the time when I'm reading Iconoclast, I have to kind of constantly flip back and forth between sections to really understand what's going on. There's a lot of information in this book that the handler is going to kind of have to parse out on their own. And the other thing that I kind of wish was in this book, like you were saying earlier, Vase, is more ways of bringing all of these moving pieces together. I feel like too much of the story feels up to the handler. Uh, overall, I do think that Shane Ivey and Adam Scott Clancy did a really great job at creating a new and fresh take on Naralethotep because it it is an elder god that's used very often in these types of stories, and it's nice to see that authors can still bring something new and fresh to the table. Brutal and just uncaring and self-serving, it's... Really well done. Definitely, definitely can see Nyarlath the Tep using this mask for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's gonna do it <laughs> finally for our <laughs> review of Iconoclast. If you're interested in picking up Iconoclast for yourself, we will leave links down in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Vase, you have any closing statements before we finish up the episode? I think three, <laughs> three review episodes i think we we did a very thorough kind of picking apart the book and uh hopefully uh you guys listen through all of it because i think i think it in in our review we also put in a lot of tips on how to how to help you run this which uh is definitely needed in this in this book but yeah uh i'm i'm glad that we we did it such a long review of it because i think it deserved a long review like this yeah, that's that's it. We want to thank everyone who has listened through all three parts of this review. It's been a pretty exhaustive process, but we hope you've enjoyed it. I've been your host, Nate, lost in time and space, joined with my fellow co-host, Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And we'll see you next time.